This is the Bike Snob of New York City, and you're listening to The Bike Show on Resonance FM 104.4. Welcome to The Bike Show here on Resonance FM. My name's Jack Thurston, and this week on the show, we've got a real treat for you. One of the very few truly original voices in the world of cycling. His name is Grant Peterson, and... Way back in the mists of time, he ran Bridgestone USA um, at a time when it was making some very cool and interesting bikes um, on the roadside and the mountainside and and other undefinable bicycles. Since then, he founded and remains the owner and uh, head honcho at Rivendell Bicycle Works over in Walnut Creek in Northern California, a place that, if you half close your eyes, is an awful lot like the Shire in The Lord of the Rings. Well, maybe you have to fully close your eyes for that. But I digress. Grant, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. You know, I, I, I wasn't that influential at Bridgestone. I, I didn't run the place. I certainly had a lot of influence over the bike, so I will say that. You're very modest. You. So you've got this book out, uh, which has been out a little while now, and it's, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that today. And its title is Just Ride. And that suggests to me that you think that there are people out there doing other things than riding their bikes. You know, um, I wanted the title of the book to be Unrace Yourself, but the publisher thought that was a little bit confusing, a little bit negative, too. And so they suggested, how about just ride? And I said, okay, but let me uh, qualify that with a subtitle that makes sense. So the subtitle is a radically practical guide to riding your bike and, and you know the thing is i think that there's too much racing influence over riding i think that you know adult bicycle riders are really just little kids and since you know if you're 35 40 45 years old uh you know you aren't gonna look to the 80 year olds for your um, inspiration so you look to the pros and the pros you know, do everything wrong. They do everything that they have to do to be racing professionals, you know, professional racing cyclists. But for anyone who doesn't have to have that job, I think it's kind of a horrible job to have to have, I think, too. Um, it doesn't work. And uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time dressing funny and riding too hard and always chasing this carrot of fitness or strength or endurance that's never enough for them. So. At the heart of your argument, also it seems to me having read the book and, and enjoyed it an awful lot, is that sport cycling, as you say, has had way too much influence and a negative influence on what we might call everyday or fun cycling. But why do you think that is? I think people want guidance and they want role models and they, for some things they seem to need it and there are no famous recreational bicycle riders or pleasure riders or tourists i mean you know if you're really in deep in bicycles you can probably name a well-known bicycle tourist from the present or past but probably your chums have never heard of that guy and but everyone knows the pros and so i i think we just copied I think we just copy the people who are getting all the accolades and are presented to us as role models. But does that work, though, in other areas? You know, we might look at, say, hill walking or something like that, where, you know, people don't look at 
Reinhold Messner and say, well, I'm going for a walk in my in my local park um, or for a couple of days up some mountains, just walking, hiking. I, I'm going to need some oxygen or maybe I'm going to do it the Alpine way and not take the oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Is Reinhold Messner still around? <laughs> I say probably. But, you know, people don't... I mean, it, why, why do we need these role models? I mean, isn't it a bit... Aren't you, aren't you slightly insulting the intelligence of, of cyclists who say, you know, they'll just follow the prominent celebrity person? It's not as though that is uh, their sole beacon and that they are honing in on that because of some genetic thing going on. It is the message that they get everywhere they look. If you pick up a cycling magazine, and I know that there are starting to be some alternatives, and I, I know that the Rough Stuff Fellowship is not this way, but a sports cycling magazine, there are the heroes on the cover. If you go down to a bike shop, I don't know what they're like in England, but I, I can imagine that they're a lot like they are here. And you walk into a bike shop, and it's wall-to-wall carbon. And the the tires, you know, if you ask for a 700 by 38 millimeter tire, they'll say, well, yeah, we can order that for you. We don't have it in stock. And if you see, you know, the visible cyclists on the road a lot of times are the, the ones in the jerseys. So you get the same message from different places, and it sinks in. I'm, I want to make it clear that I was one of those people for a long time. I have always been athletic in my life. I, I, I don't wear tweed and smoke a pipe and wear a bowler hat when I ride my bike, and I'm not trying to get people to do that. Um, I, what I'm trying to do is just, um, I guess, convey the message that you don't have to wear funny clothes or ride a really impractical bike or... Uh, ride your ass off every time you ride a bike to have a good time on a bike. Well, let's just dwell on that question about where this comes from, because I guess the shops are going to say, well, you know, people come in, they want a fast, light bike. They, they think speed, um, lightness, aerodynamics, those are the things that are important to racers and um, and the people that they see on the TV, and, and you know that's going to make it easier for them, right? They, they're not necessarily wanting to have it so they can win races, but they think, well, you know, it's going to make it easier for me to be on a lightweight carbon bicycle that's nice and low, so I don't have all that wind resistance. And and then the shops comply, or do you think it's the other way around that the shops are saying, you know, um, this bike is going to be terribly heavy if you have this this bike and obviously you need the skinny tires because you're going to cut through the air much quicker and it's going to be a lot easier and you're going to be going a lot faster for the amount of effort who is pulling whom or pushing whom well you know that's a good question and you sound like uh you have a good handle on everything (laughs) um but I'll, i'll see if i can sort of explain that i think a lot of shops or you know not just bike shops but a lot of retail just you know, if you get to retail training, at some point you are told that, you know, pick up on wh- where the momentum is going, where the movement is going, and don't get in the way of that. And if they come in predisposed to thinking that they want a really light bike, that it's going to be easier for them, um, you know, why, <laughs> why bump them off that course? 
I mean, that is the thinking. I am absolutely a bumper off that course. When somebody comes into Rivendell, and whether I'm talking to them or whether anyone else is, and they say, you know, I, you know, you get a guy who's five eight and two hundred and ten pounds, which is not outrageous these days. It's fairly common. And he says, you know, I want a lighter bike, you know, and he associates a lighter bike with being able to go faster, easier, and therefore he will have fun going really hard on a 50-mile ride. And we always tell the person, and I mentioned this in the book too, well, the thing about bike weight is that bikes are weighed without the engine, and as soon as you put the engine on, it's not just the weight of the engine, but the powerfulness of the engine that determines how fast you're going to go on the bike. And, of course, the engine is the person who is shopping for the bike. And when you look at it like that, you know, it's not too insulting. It, it, I think in that case, it's the opposite of insulting. You are just pointing out something to him that there's no point in weighing the bicycle without the engine and looking at the power of the engine. So I don't, you know, you have to do it all with good humor, though. You know, you can't do it in a condescending way, a patronizing way, and I know more than you kind of way. Just talk to them like they're normal, like they're your friend. Which, why not? So let's let's talk a little bit about the kind of things that you think we all ought to be unlearning um, to become, as you put it in the book, an unracer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where to start. I mean, I Ned, go on, go on. Okay. Well, you can start with the clothes. Any clothing that you wear is really a uniform, and it's a uniform that sort of helps you behave in accordance with the expectations of that uniform. I mean, if if you dress like a racer, you tend to ride like a racer. You don't want somebody in civilian clothes passing you on the bike. If you see somebody ahead of you, you tend to chase them down. I think there may be some natural inclination to do that anyway. But when you dress like a businessman, you tend to behave a certain way. When you dress like a, you know, a prostitute, you may probably tend to behave a certain way, or a busboy, or a bicycle racer. And so I'd say get rid of the clothing. There's, you can certainly dress appropriately uh, without wearing advertisements on you. And, you know, hikers and walkers don't wear advertisements on them, but cyclists so often do. I'm often quite amazed by this because you do see people wearing football shirts in this country you know if they're a very keen supporter of of a certain club they might wear that club's colors but i think a lot of people who ride bikes would set themselves apart from the kind of people that would wear football colors yet they're quite content to wear um, a cycling jersey that's kind of got a load of advertising on that may change from one year to the next depending on how the sponsorship deals go and it's not even a a team that's from your area that you could at least claim to have some kind of <laughs> tribal identification with. It's just it's just sort of plucked out of uh, of, of the air. People who have worn a Multani jersey, Eddie Merckx's team, know that that was the sausage factory. Yeah, and, and, and quite a bad sausage, I think, at that. It wasn't like some artisanal uh, sausage, was it? They got into some trouble because of uh, contamination with the sausage. I, I do remember that. Well, but, but, no artisanal sausage company is going to have the money to uh, sponsor a professional race team. <laughs> For sure. Um, but you're also against, from a kind of pure efficiency point of view, 
the tight-fitting look that pervades cycling and this idea of moisture being wicked away from the skin and, and transmitted into the ether. <laughs> I like you. Yeah, uh, that is true. You know, people have survived so long without that. Clearly, if, if you're going out on a long ride in the rain or a mist or a fog or threatening weather, don't wear cotton because if it gets wet, you know, it's going to stay wet. But just perfectly good wool or even wool blend polyester clothing out there. Probably, I would say, any non-cotton shirt. Not, maybe not any, but most of them in your wardrobe right now is perfectly good cycling shirt for rides of, I don't know, half an hour to three hours, something like that. Uh, a lot of clothing works well. If you don't believe this, try it. Go for a ride in a reasonable shirt, the kind of shirt that you would wear hiking. And go for a ride in that shirt and see if you see if your experience is spoiled. And I'm guessing that it won't be. And you don't have to worry about all the flapping around. Uh, that's not going to be uh, making it harder by sort of creating a sail that you're going to be blown back down the down the hill. You know, if you have a tailwind, it's probably going to help you. But uh, aerodynamics only kick in at speeds of a little over 20 miles an hour, and nobody rides at 20 miles an hour, unless you're, you know, if you're training, if you're in a pack. But if you're just out riding with your friends, you aren't riding at 20 miles an hour. If you're a solo guy just going out for a fun ride out in the hills of the woods, you are not going that fast. It's more like 14, 13, 15. And those speeds, it just doesn't make any difference. And, you know, if it's not a race anyway, let's say you're going to do a loop from your porch back to your porch, and you're going to cover, I don't know, 19 miles in that loop. If you claim to be a bicycle rider, and along with that claim goes the assumption that you enjoy riding your bike, why is it, again, that you want to shave 22 seconds off of this ride that you presumably are enjoying? and you aren't on a race, it just, you know, it doesn't make sense. I'm not trying to get people to dress the way I do. I'm saying dive into your wardrobe, your closets, your drawers, wear the clothes that you already like and you've selected for other activities and see how they work for riding, and they'll probably work okay. Yeah, well, let's talk about the shoes, because yeah. this this kind of came to me at a very, a very clear moment that I was riding out with an acquaintance to a to an old church um just outside of london in in a place called stoke poges which is um reasonably famous because of uh, a poem that was written kind of inspired by that the uh, elegy to an english churchyard by thomas gray it's sort of what a proto romantic poem of the 18th century anyway it's 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 you learn it at school and it's set in this churchyard supposedly what's There's, the name of the church um, it's at Stoke Poges. Stoke, that sounds so English. It's like you've combined every English-sounding word into one. Well, there's also something quite interesting there for the cyclist as well as the poetry lover, which is that in one of the stained-glass windows there, there is a little cherub who appears to be riding a bicycle. And this is from four or 500 years ago. So this could could conceivably be the the birthplace of the bicycle where wherever this piece of stained glass was made. So we were on a we were on a 
came down. Yeah, we were on a double mission um, for the poem and the and and the stained glass window. We walked in, and and I I was wearing some kind of clip-in shoes, sort of mountain biking type of shoes, and the guy I was with was wearing the full-on racer shoes, and walked in over the flagstones of this of this old church, and he just went flying. You know, he he slid so badly, and I thought, oh, oh goodness, he's he's he's. He, I'm going to have to call an ambulance. He's going to have broken his shoulder or his elbow or something like that. And and then it just made me think: these shoes are a really bad idea. And then you could be wearing the uh, the mountain biking type of one, where at least it's not you know metal on it's stone. Recessed. It's yeah. recessed, but you know you step in a puddle and you've got a wet foot for the rest of the day. <laughs> So it just dawned on me that that Grant Peterson was right, and that at that moment I uh, needed to, um, as a matter of urgency, get some enormous flat pedals and some fairly sticky shoes, which is basically the formula, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, it's not even that I'm right. It's like most of the bicycle riders in the world are right. I came late to the party. I mean, I'm 58 years old. I did not discover this until I was about 48, you know, so just 10 years ago. But most of the people in the world do not wear special shoes that click into pedals when they ride a bike. Just the visible, famous, rich, you know, cheating type of bicycle riders. But but I tell you, but the other thing is, if if I could have had a pound for every person who had said to me, but you know, I can, I can get so much more power on, on the upswing of my leg because of these clip-in shoes, then, you know, I'd be able to, I don't know, I'd be able to afford a Rivendell bicycle. Um, so talk us through the physics of that thing. Of, of what about the pulling up thing? Okay, well, let me make it clear. I'm not smart enough to talk anybody through the physics of anything, but I will say that there have been studies and where they hook professional cyclists and really good triathletes and other peddlers, they attach probes to their muscles and they have determined that nobody pulls up on the backstroke. In fact, the best peddlers, the most efficient peddlers, are weighting the upward moving pedal a little bit less than the inefficient peddlers, but the pedal is still weighted on the upstroke. Now, get clear on this. If the upward moving pedal is being weighted at all, then clearly you are not pulling up on it. And any one person could be hearing this and saying, oh, that's BS. I know that I pull up because when I climb this hill, I'm concentrating on pulling up. And it may be true that for a short grunt of a hill, you can pull up. But if you just go out and ride your bike, on rolling terrain, flat terrain, just a general bike ride, you may concentrate on pulling up, on applying power 360 degrees around, but that lasts a minute or so. You just lapse into just pedaling the bike anyway. And the the latest thing, the avant-garde of pedaling biomechanics, the coaches are even saying, just push down on the pedal. It's going to go around in a circle anyway. You cannot help but pedal circles. I'd say, you know, don't give it any thought. And if you aren't pulling up, you certainly don't need a firm attachment on the pedal. And the advantage to not having an attachment on the pedal is not just that you suddenly have the availability of all the other shoes in your closet, but also you can move your foot fore and aft 
on the pedal to to work different muscles in your legs as you pedal. When you're going up a long grinder of a hill, it helps to pedal more closer, have your arch over the center of the pedal. And if you're sprinting, maybe more the ball of your foot. But just being able to move it is going to, uh, I think, probably... I hate, I hate even any concerns about efficiency, but I, I, I think it cannot help but be a little bit more efficient over time. And it certainly is not going to lock you into the same stroke that's going to lead to a um, to an injury from repeating the same imperfect motion over and over again. And that can happen with a clipless pedal. Yeah, I mean, the way I put it when I try and convince people of this of this thing is that you know people pay a lot of money to have a bike fit. And one of the things that they that they that they focus on when they do a bike fit is your foot on on the pedal and getting the cleat in just the right place. But if you have your foot free on the pedal, you can basically give yourself a permanent rolling bike fit that is just right for whatever situation you're in at that moment. And, and you get your own biomechanic feedback in real time as you're cycling. You know, you just put it a better way than I have ever put it, even trying to put it the best possible way that is that should be in the book (laughs) (laughs) well second edition um so i mean the the strand that kind of runs through a lot of the talk about about shoes and clothing and bike and and this kind of thing is is comfort ultimately isn't it you want people to be comfortable on the bicycle because if they're comfortable then they'll enjoy riding and they'll be able to ride further if that's what they want to do yeah, I, I mean, I want to be comfortable 24 hours a day, and I certainly want to be comfortable on the bike. I mean, right now, right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm lying down on my bed with my head in a pillow staring at the ceiling, and I am perfectly comfortable. And I kind of want to come close to that when I'm on a bike because I like to be comfortable. If beyond comfort... You want to be able to ride harder or ride longer or to be more efficient. That is fine, but you can't do any of those things if you are not comfortable. So just start with the premise. It's not a big leap that comfort is good, and then uh, find it. And this whole nonsense of buying a, a racing bike that's a little bit on the small side and then getting used to it, oh yeah well you're just using different muscles or this is a different position so it feels a little awkward at first but trust me you will get used to it i think that's nonsense and i think that if a bike isn't comfortable right off the bat on a short test ride it's certainly not going to be a comfortable bike uh after an hour or half an hour or ever so yeah comfort and so chiefly here you're talking really about handlebar height in relation to uh to saddle height which you think should be more or less in a kind of equal alignment horizontal line between the two i mean for racing you tend to lean forward a little bit more get down more and that and that makes it easier to reach the bars but for anything other than a high you know a time trial position on a bike or something higher handlebars make a lot more sense and Higher handlebars used to be the norm until about 
say 1990, 1989, uh, Campagnolo used to make two size seat posts, two lengths. One was 180 millimeters, which is way shorter than anything you can buy now. And what do you think the other one was? Just take a guess, Jack. I don't know, probably like 185 or something really close to it. No, 130. 130. So, you know, but the point is, the, the, the way bikes were sized and fitted back then, if you needed a post longer than 180 millimeters, that bike's too small. You need to get a bigger, bigger sized bike. When mountain bikes uh, came on the scene, they used longer seat posts for a variety of reasons that made sense that aren't worth the time it would take to explain them here. But then mountain bike riders converted to road bikes, and they were used to riding much smaller bikes, maybe an 18-inch mountain bike, and then they'd get a 21-inch road bike, when they really should have been on a 23-inch road bike. And so, and long seat posts have made it easy to buy a bike that's too small and still have a good saddle height, because you can just raise the seat post. But I think Bikes are sized too small. And I think the last people to really go big time in proper bike sizing were the British. Because if you look at, at the, the English bikes in the 60s and at least through the 70s, they were all pretty reasonable uh, bikes. You know, the setup, the bars were close to the same height as the saddle. Yeah, I mean, someone might say that that comes from the way that bikes were constructed with lug uh, construction that would require you to have a horizontal top tube because the lugs were, you know, using the same kind of lugs over and over again, rather than being able to, you know, cut it however you want and and weld it, um, like like they a lot of bike manufacturers, most bike manufacturers working in steel, would do now. And I guess the advantage maybe of a sloping top tube, and I certainly feel it because I have one of these old style bikes that you're talking about is that sometimes like today I was out riding in Hampshire and it was a little icy and um, I came I came flying um, off off the bike um, nothing you know nothing got hurt today? I had a little crash this morning but I just it's weird I just landed on the ice and I just slid along the ice so I think a lot of my uh, downward momentum that if I would been on the road would have would would have like come back into my body was somehow deflected into this this slide that I did along yeah. all the way along the uh, all the way along the road and and actually I just hopped up and I was I was okay but but when I do have those very stupid little falls particularly maybe on an off-road situation it's quite nice when you don't feel like you're battling with a top tube that's going to bring you down and you can just leap away from the bike particularly if you're not clipped into the pedals you can just leap away from from a from a sort of falling bike and uh, that that that's a benefit of having a of a sloping top tube, and and then you've got to have the higher seat post to to get the saddle where you want it. You know, do people in England just leap away from falling bikes? I've I've never been able to, to do that. <laughs> well, I try. When the bike goes down, I go down. Yeah, but you know, you can get away. You can kind of feel it happening, or or uh, you you can you can try and do that stuff. No. You know, I think probably. It's easier to eject the bike if you aren't clipped into the pedal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's in, it's an interesting historical point because if you talk to yeah. if you talk to Alex Moulton about why he came up with his design, one of the things he will tell you, and this is not often 
recorded or, or spoken about because it was all about the suspension and the small wheels and, and, and that kind of thing is actually he was riding around on a classic English bicycle and he thought this is very, this is very dangerous to have this tube here that kind of traps you under the bike. I, I, I want to get that thing out of the way and uh, that's one of the reasons why he developed that F-frame shape in the 60s that, that would, would, would essentially free you. And if you've ever had a, any kind of spill on a Moulton, you can really step out of the way on that. I, I can vouch for that. I think the best way for me to look stupid is to uh, argue against anything that Alex Moulton has said because he is so much smarter than I am. And his bikes are phenomenal. And that may be a uh, it may be a point in favor of of a lower top tube. I would still say getting the handlebars up higher, getting the weight off the handlebars, allowing your arms to relax and move and absorb shocks with the bumps as you're riding is an important thing to do on a bike. And Moulton may be able to do that just with a really long stem. Certainly, you know, you can achieve a wonderful position on a Moulton that is sized and fitted properly too. I think we're um, splitting hairs here. I mean, I, I, I think there is something to be said for a sloping top tube, but I'm totally with you on the, uh, the handlebars being high, not least because it allows you to enjoy looking around at, at your surroundings as you're oh, yeah. cycling through them. Um, I want to just raise a couple of points that maybe I found a little bit of what I think is inconsistency in your book. Um, and, and the first one is to do with gears. Every year there are more gears, and that makes for a more comfortable ride, doesn't it? That you, you've got the, the gear that you want. And you seem to be saying, actually, there are too many gears. Um, people are being mollycoddled. They should just toughen up a bit. And, and I never used the word mollycoddled in that book. I would have remembered that. I don't have ever heard that word. <laughs> I've never used it. <laughs> but no, I, I see what you're saying. Okay, uh, continue with your point. I, I didn't. No, no. I mean, you, you got the point that, that, that gears make for a greater comfort, and you're in favor of comfort, and therefore lots of gears is a, is a good thing. Well, I think I also say somewhere in the book that you need eight gears. And I, and, I, and I don't have the book in front of me now. I'm in bed now as we're talking. And you don't have a copy uh, with you there in bed? I'm, I'm disappointed. Know, I have a whole bunch of books on my bedside table, but they are, you know, I don't have a copy of my own book on a, on a bedside table. <laughs> now, maybe that would be actually be more worrying, wouldn't it? It would a little bit, yeah. I think that would be a little bit dangerous for me to have that. But, you know... So how many gears do you need? I'd say you need a really high gear, a regular high gear, a medium high gear, a medium gear, a medium low gear, a low gear, a really low gear, and a super, super low gear. And that's eight. And all you really need to do is, you know, you want pick up a, pick a high gear that you're going to use and a low gear that you're going to need and fill in six or seven gears you know, in between, and then if the gear is a little bit too easy, pedal a little bit faster. If it's a little bit too hard, uh, you know, pedal a little bit harder. You know, there's always a gear close enough. The point, maybe I didn't make this point in the book, and maybe I will try to make it better in a future edition, is that your legs are your gears. Your body, your legs, your lungs, whatever, you can fill 
in the gaps between gears just by a little bit more effort. You know, if it takes a lot more effort to fill in that gap, then you just shift to another gear. I don't know, you know, I ride eight or nine in the back and three in front, and that seems to be plenty of gears. Yeah, I mean, nine, nine, that's, uh, that's, that's more than I expected. I would have thought you'd have definitely be one of those people who stopped at eight. You know, I have eight on some bike, nine on a... I don't even know whether I could... How far, how far are they going to go with this? When are we going to get 13? Well, I think Shimano has already developed and has in the books a 14-speed cassette. Uh, but I think they've had that for almost 10 years. Um, it's interesting where things are going because it's now up to, what, 11? So, so maybe it's 11 now, but then what uh, SRAM is doing with gears, they've got like a 10-speed a with a 42-tooth rear cog on it, something like that. So a lot of things are happening with gears. I don't know. I mean, I just, I just figure that eight or nine usable gears should cover you. Racers need smaller steps between gears because if you're, if you're racing, and I, I spent, you know, six and a half, seven years racing uh when you change gears you want that gear to be right you don't want your cadence to change much when you change gears you want to maintain a fairly even cadence so you don't shift to a a gear that's a little bit too big then you have to rev it up and get back on top of the gear but for a recreational cyclist and i use that in the you know the best sense of the word not a condescending sense of the word like only a recreational cyclist I just mean for someone who's not a racing cyclist, I don't think it just makes that much difference. But for anybody, you know, I mean, like, if you, Jack, you know, enjoy having 11 cogs in the rear, then, hey, I'm all for it. No, I'm, I'm desperately trying to play devil's advocate here, Grant. I'm, <laughs> I'm an, I'm an, I've stopped at eight. I mean, not least because it's cheaper to replace them. The chain and the and the and the cogs are, m- are much more expensive once you go to nine and and ten and eight seems a a, a good. Uh, eight is, it, is plenty. And is it the eightfold path. The eight what? Isn't it the, some Buddhist thing? The eightfold path, or is that Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. There, oh yeah, yeah. As, as so often, the point I want to raise now is actually something that that came up in a, in another review of your book by a very assiduous uh, Scottish reviewer. And he says that throughout the book, you're professing this lazy, carefree approach to cycling. Don't bother doing stuff that you don't need to do. And and one of the things you say is that you don't wear cycling gloves because you can't be bothered to wash them. It's just too much faff. But then, almost straight away, you embark on a lengthy description, a treatise even, on, on how to wrap your handlebars in twine and then coat them with shellac. And that seems to me like an awful lot of bother, as it seemed to, uh, seemed to the reviewer. <laughs> There's a little danger of mixed messages here, you know. What's going on? Where is the beauty in being totally consistent? I mean, where is the value in that? I mean, you know, I think it's more a matter of you pick things, and this is true for me, true for anybody. You pick things that matter to you and you can sort of wallow in those a little bit longer than you will wallow in something that doesn't matter to you. Now, yeah, I, I, I do advocate uh, 
twining the ends of the handlebar tape down. But I advocate that sort of in the sense that, hey, this is kind of fun, this is kind of neat, this is kind of wacky. It takes 10 minutes, but it lasts, you know, seven years. And it, you know, it confuses people who haven't seen it. You know, you, you go in a group of cyclists, you leaning your bikes out, you know, outside the same cafe, and all these guys in spandex with their team jerseys glance at your bike, then they see a little bit of twine in the bar tape where they've always seen electrical tape or just tape down, and they think they've seen everything, and now suddenly they haven't seen everything. So it's easy, and it's a way that you can actually get involved in your bike, get involved in your bike, and not in a pain-in-the-neck way, but just 10 minutes. It's kind of fun. It's a basic little, almost skillless, artsy little trick that you can do to your bike. And as far as the the gloves, I'm not trying to get people to not wear cycling gloves, but I'm just saying, you know, they aren't that necessary, you know. I mean, in, in fair weather, if you don't crash a lot, if you're familiar with the roads, if you're comfortable with your ability to stay upright on a bike, just ride the bike and, I don't know. I, I wouldn't imagine that Twitter is something that you've even heard of, Grant, but um, it's this thing that you can look at on the internet um, that provides... The what? It's this... What's this net? This, yeah, this, this sort of a computer thing that you look at that tells you stuff that other people are saying about stuff that maybe you're interested in as well, in real time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Give it a go. But uh, there was the Twitter stream going along, watching the... Um, the Paris-Roubaix this year, um, and it was won by Tom Bonin, and he was not wearing gloves. And he doesn't wear gloves. This is not, he just doesn't wear gloves. He was going for maximum aerodynamic advantage. Well, and weight-saving, I imagine. Yeah. You know, also just looking hard on the, on the cobblestones. Uh, sure. Yeah, better grip, maybe. I mean, there's an, you could say you get better grip with your, with your hands than when you have a glove. I don't know. If you were thinking as a racer, which we're trying not to do, you could say that, that actually a, a, a gloved hand is, is a step backwards in efficiency. I would probably agree with that, but I still think if, if people want to protect their hands... We, we know that they all do it for the tan lines. That's what they do it for. And the little polka-dotted... Yeah, the little polka-dot tan lines. Yeah. That's like a talking point, like the um, twine on the, uh, on the bar tape. In, incidentally, when, when anybody says to me, oh, I really want to buy, I really want a new bike, I just say, ask yourself that question, having replaced the handlebar tape on your current bike. Yeah. And you'd be surprised the number of times that they, they just, oh, yeah, maybe I don't need that new bike. It's weird, isn't it? The way new bar tape makes the whole bike seem like a new bike. Yeah, and even new handlebars can do that too, certainly will do that. But bikes are always works in progress for everybody. It, it's not that you try something and it doesn't work, but you try something, you get used to it, you just think, ah, you know, I want to try something else, just another variation. Grant, you've been very generous with your time. I want to introduce one more theme, if, if we may, on, on the subject of touring, um, okay. which is, you know, my greatest passion as a as, as a cyclist and, and actually i think that when it comes down to it most of the non-commuting non-racing riding of bicycles is touring i mean actually i'm not sure what what other cycling there is if you're not riding to work and you're not riding at work because you race a bike for a living you are essentially touring you are going for a journey 
somewhere interesting or pleasant. Are you talking about a uh, a long tour where you go from for several days? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, I think cycling in the last five years or so, and we've documented it on the radio show, has become very cool in all its different genres. And the only bit of cycling that doesn't seem to have had a good thick lick of that cool brush is touring. But yet, that is actually what we all do, but we don't somehow realise it. I mean, there's the obviously there's the adventure cycling expedition type of touring, but I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about going out for a spin, popping into a church, climbing a tree, having a picnic, going for a swim in a river or a waterfall, or having a barbecue on the beach, or all that kind of stuff that you might do on a bike. And of course, if you want to go and make it a couple of days and camp out or stay at a bed and breakfast, then you know, you're know you getting further and further towards that what is traditionally understood by touring. But yet, the word itself doesn't conjure up something that's very aspirational. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. And that is, uh, I, for most people, I mean, certainly for me, that's the most fun way to ride a bike. You know, I often go on overnight campouts in the local hills and on the trails and things like that, and that's my number one favorite use of the bike. I just use the bike to go there, but for a lot of people, just riding like that is it's not something that they consider because I think there is so much pressure to go a little bit faster, a little bit harder, a little bit longer, they don't get any message that it's okay to, and I'm not trying to invoke the title of my book into the answer or the response or conversation, but it's not okay for a lot of people in their mind to just ride. You know, they, they are so wound up in getting fit, losing weight, going harder, whipping themselves into shape that they can even get the message that Riding the way that you have just described it is a bit of a waste of time or something for them. What's the point if if I can't burn up so many calories an hour uh, and burn off fat, which is a whole other bone of contention, I think. But um, then what's the point of riding a bike? And I think that uh, riding a bike for fun to go places just for the pleasure of riding the bike is underestimated and under-marketed. I mean, some of the marketing that we've seen that's been very effective recently has been making, essentially going for a ride in the countryside, this kind of epic thing that's that's demanding and tiring. And, and you and I know who we're talking about. Maybe we don't need to name them. Maybe we should name them. But, you know, they, they produce these moody videos with the with the kind of glowering sky and there's some poetry and there's some ruggedness. Do they ever have stubble on their face? That is the question. <laughs> is there ever any stubble on the face? They've always just had a very uh, a, a close shave before that morning espresso. <laughs> but, you know, when did it all become epic? I know exactly what you're saying with the whole epic thing, that rides can't be mild, they can't be pleasurable, they can't be something to enjoy at your own pace and with your own friends. They have to be, even if they are not sanctioned races, real official races with a number, you just get more glory if you barely survive them. If the weather is foul and the roads are wrong and they're muddy and slippery, 
and you can't wait for the end of the ride, people find glory in that. And um, maybe it's just a phase. I don't know. You know, I could be way off on a lot of this stuff, but I, I think about a lot of cyclists who get into it as adults maybe were not athletic in middle school or in high school, and they missed out on the team, the whole team sports experience. And now that they're in middle age, they're recapturing something. I don't mean to be full of BS here, but I have given this some thought. And maybe they're just, they want the ritual of dressing up, if not for the game, for their chosen sport now, which is bicycle riding. And they want the grit and the sweat and the pain of uh, training, uh, which takes the place of practicing football or baseball practice or whatever. Now they are just living what they didn't live back in middle and high school. You know, do you feel that they're, that they're doing something wrong? Do you feel that they need to be corrected, these people who are enamored of the, the epic nature of pain and, and suffering? Do they need to just wake up and, and start enjoying life? I think a different way to look at it, rather than sort of a pedantic way or a teaching... You know, I don't want to assume the position of a teacher. I wrote a book that doesn't make me an authority on anything. It means that I wrote a book and I got it published, and it's a point of view of if it makes sense for you, then that's great. And if it doesn't, well, that's okay, too. But here is what I would say to answer your question. I would say... When you're going on a bicycle ride, if you would not go on this ride that you're about to do, if nobody heard about it, if you could not talk about it, would you still go on the ride? And I think that would probably rule out a lot of epic rides. That would rule out the 75-mile rides in the rain on mixed terrain for a lot of people. So I'd say ride for your own reasons. Don't ride for my reasons. You know, I don't even know you. You don't even know me. But just ride for good reasons. Ride because you enjoy riding the bike, not because you want the admiration of friends or even strangers who will look at you and say, hey, look how much that guy can suffer. What's the point in that? And certainly, you know, don't copy bicycle racers who have, no options. You know, they have to train those miles. They have to ride those rides because their job depends on it. Don't make bicycle riding your work. You know, it's the work. It's the profession of the professionals. And presumably you're doing something else for a living. And so just allow yourself to have fun. Just play on the bike rather than work on the bike. Very well said, Grant. Thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous with us. I know that there'll be people out there hanging on your every word. So I'll let you get back to uh, whatever it was you were doing there in bed. You know, we had this scheduled for 3 o'clock my time. And uh, I got off work and I went for a little bit of ride. And I'd completely forgotten about the 3 o'clock thing. So fortunately, I arrived home at about five minutes to three and then the phone rang and I'd forgotten all about it and as soon as you said uh, hey Grant this is Jack I thought oh god I'm glad I'm here we're very glad you've been here with us thanks Grant well thank you Jack cheerio Bye -bye. I was talking with Grant Peterson 
of Rivendell Bicycle Works and author of Just Ride, a radically practical guide to riding your bike. I hope you enjoyed listening to Grant. I tried to be probing and provocative, but it's difficult to conduct a tough interview with somebody when you agree with pretty much everything that they have to say. Now, he's a terrific and a very special man, and it's great to have him on the show. His book is well worth a read. It covers a lot of things that we didn't talk about, of course, and has uh, interesting and useful advice and tips, as well as a whole lot of Peterson patented bicycle philosophy. It would make an excellent stocking filler for anyone who you think may need leading on that long journey towards becoming an unracer. That's it for this edition of The Bike Show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, from me, Jack Thurston. Goodbye.